Amen. Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we will be actually in two texts, one briefly and the other one a little bit more extensively. Uh, First of all, Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Mark chapter 9, verse 24, which should be on the screen behind me. It says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That is the text that we get the phrase in our call to worship to all who believe and struggle in unbelief from. However, if you are here at this church frequently, you know that we are also, before we did this series on uh, the call to worship, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, when we come back, we will be in Mark chapter eight twenty-two, and then two weeks later, we will cover Mark 9, verse 24. So because of that, I decided, rather than explicitly teaching on that text, though I will reference it several times, that we would talk about the theme from that text, the theme that's carried over into our call to worship, which is seen pretty clearly in Luke chapter uh, 21, verses 31 and 32. So that will be the primary text we'll be going from this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32. 21 and 22. I'm very confused. Luke 22, 31 and 32. I've got it written down wrong for the third time. Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sit you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When I taught eighth grade math, which I did very briefly a few years ago, uh, there was a huge emphasis in that school district at that time, in that year, on helping students who were failing in your class. You were primarily focused on those who were failing, even over and above those who were succeeding. So we had time built in each day and separate times set aside within each class and weekly and monthly to be able to help those students who were failing, to be able to give them the extra help that they needed to be able to pass. We even went personally, and the the team that I was with, we went to the point where there was no such thing as a zero on on an assignment. You could always turn it in. There was no due date. You always had the chance to go back and fix the mistake that you had before. You could redo it over and over. You could always turn it in up until the last day of that semester, the last day of that school year, in the hope that these students would not fail but would be able to improve their grades. I even personally went so far as offering free help, free tutoring, homework help, before school, during lunch, and after school. And I had about 75 students in my classes at that time. There were roughly 15 or so who were failing. Do you know how many ever, one time, tried to come in and get the help that they needed to pass the class? Zero. Not a single one. I offered it every day. I was ready and prepared every day and not a single one showed up. So then, one day, toward the end of the semester, when grades began to be due, my principal called me in and asked me, why are there so many students who are failing in your class? Why are there so many who are struggling in your class, is actually what she said. 
And I thought for a second, and I said, there are no students who are struggling in my class. There are two kinds of students in my classes. There are those who are trying and those who are failing. No one is trying and failing. No one is actually struggling to pass my eighth grade math class. It was designed in such a way that all you had to do was turn in the work and you would pass. No one was struggling. Some were failing, yes, but not a single one was struggling as they did so. And I have to wonder, when you hear the call to worship each Sunday, when you hear the phrase, to all who believe and struggle in unbelief, how many groups of people do you hear in that phrase? Do you hear that as two groups, three, four? I think the the phrasing would make you say there's got to be at least two. But I think... When I think of that call to worship phrase, that there are at least three groups here rather than merely two. There are those who believe and do not struggle in unbelief. There are those who do not believe and do struggle in unbelief. But then there are also those who believe and yet still struggle in unbelief. And actually, from the text in Mark 9 where we get the phrase from, that group is the one most explicitly seen in Scripture and in our text today. But that call to worship that we give every week goes out to all who believe. So what is it to believe? Who are these people who are believers? When we say to all who believe, we mean by that both their position and their attitude. Their position is one as a believer. That's who they are. That's what they are. To have a position as one who believes is simply to be one who is a believer. Someone who at one point in time has placed their faith in Christ, has believed that he's the Son of God, that he atoned for their sins at the cross, that he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and being the first example of the resurrection that they will one day experience. Believers, by definition, are those who believe. They're not outside of God's promises looking in. They're not hardened to the commands of Christ, but rather they hope to take up their cross daily, to follow him daily. They are God's people positionally. That is who they are. They have been removed from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his marvelous light. So their identity has been changed. Who they are now is fundamentally different than who they were before. That's absolutely who they are at the deepest, most important level. They are fundamentally different than before. Their title has changed from sinner to son. Their position has changed from darkness to light. Their hearts have changed from stone to flesh. To be one who believes is to always and forever carry that title of believer. It's who you are. So they believe positionally, but they also can believe with their attitude. It could be a present disposition of belief. It may be how they presently feel. Those who are believers now by nature can also be believers now by attitude. They can be presently believing feeling like believers in the way they think, the way they feel, the way they act. They can think like a believer. They have their renewed minds, which are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world. They've been transformed in their very thoughts, and they can tell. It feels like it. When they hear Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, which says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, 
and the God of peace will be with you. When they hear those verses, they hear exactly what they already desire. They hear exactly what they already want. They, right now, wholeheartedly, desperately want to pursue things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. That they may continue to experience God's peace. They think like a believer thinks. But these people typically also feel like a believer. It's not just an intellectual exercise for them. They don't just have to exercise their discipline and willpower to pursue the things of God. They just kind of feel like doing it. He's changed not only their minds, but their hearts in such a way that when they say they believe, they're not reminding themselves of something that they do believe. They're speaking the truth out of the overflow of their hearts. So then wherever they act, their actions line up with that. When they think of the true, the good, and the beautiful, they're able to actually pursue it. When they hear Christ tell his disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, they say, all righty. I love you. I will keep your commandments. It it comes naturally to them, or at least it seems like it does. So then they do it. Because they think of his commandments and love his commandments, and even more so love the giver of those commandments, they keep them. They do what God has commanded. And even more than that, it kind of just comes easy to them. They're a believer by status, and that status carries over into their attitude. That's what it looks like to be one who believes. So who are these people? Who are these super-Christians, these believers? Who is able to believe like that? Well, Christians do, Christians can, and non-Christians don't. They can't. Christians can. You cannot be one of these people who actually currently believes, somebody who it just comes natural to, without first being one who has believed. You don't get to skip to the easy part. You have to get there through the belief part. Now, we'll get to those who have believed but are currently struggling to believe in a second. But the normal experience, the hopeful experience, what your aim is as a Christian is that you would spend your days with the kind of belief that we just talked about. That it would come easy. That it wouldn't be a struggle. Now, we know that's not the reality, but that's what we want, isn't it? That's what we desire, isn't it? We hope that it comes naturally. It's my prayer for everyone in this room to enjoy a Christian walk which is marked not just by white-knuckled perseverance, not just by grabbing life by the horns and wrestling it to the ground out of discipline, because you know this is what you're supposed to be doing. It's my hope that you might be able to experience, even if just for a season, even if just for a time, even if just for a day, the opportunity for it to feel like it comes easy. That out of love for the God who saved you, you think like a Christian, you feel like a Christian, you act like a Christian. Because there will come a day when it will come easy. It might not ever happen in this life, but that day will come. You will have that opportunity. It's absolutely my hope that you will believe and therefore have a changed position. But I also hope that that position change results in an attitude, a disposition change. Wherein your mind, your feelings, your actions move forward in a continued faith and belief that what you say you believe comes naturally to you in your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. That may only come in seasons where that may be true. It may be just days. It may be just brief glimpses and moments where you are able to experience that kind of belief, that kind of change. But when that happens, 
when that day finally comes, when you're able to experience that moment, when God gives grace to you to see a tiny sliver of the abundant life which awaits you in Christ, when the sky cracks and heaven shoots down to earth and that beam hits your face, know that every desire that you have to dwell in that moment and that glory forever, that desire is going to be granted. That day will come for you. It may not come in this life. In fact, let me just burst your bubble. It won't come in this life. But it will come. That opportunity is there. There will come a day when it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to struggle. That which is easy and natural will be what you experience for forever. And Christians can often experience a shadow of that truth, even now in this life. But non-Christians simply don't have that chance. By definition, a non-believer does not have that kind of faith. They are on the outside looking in. They're still trapped in the realm of darkness. They have no desire to be changed into Christ's image. Romans 8.8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And because they cannot please God, they cannot experience his pleasure. They cannot now. But that doesn't mean that they cannot one day. Because they can. So when we walk into this room, when most of us do so as a believer, at least positionally, maybe not feeling the easiness that, may, that can sometimes come with that. When we walk in this room as believers, we are called by God to his worship in Christ. And so we call all who believe into the worship of him. But we also call all those who struggle in unbelief. So what is it to struggle in unbelief? What does that look like? To struggle in unbelief is either to disbelieve, to be a non-believer, or possibly to have an imperfect belief. To disbelieve is to be one of those non-believers that we just talked about. They're not Christians. They haven't placed their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work for their salvation from their sins. They're both positionally and experientially outside of the grace of Christ. They might even believe what we say about God and Christ. They might say that is true. They might be able to nod their heads with every fact that we say on a Sunday morning. But they're not believers because they don't believe it's true for them. They haven't believed it. They haven't put their faith, hope, and trust into it. They haven't made it true for them. And whether they know it or not... They are struggling in their unbelief. Romans 1, verses 18 through 22, says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They know God exists, and yet they suppress that truth. They're out of excuses for why they are the way they are. And because they don't believe, because they don't honor God or give thanks to him, their thinking has become futile, pointless, 
their hearts are darkened. Though they may think they are wise, they reveal themselves to be fools. To struggle in unbelief, to have that kind of struggle, that kind of pointless thinking, that kind of darkened heart, that kind of life without hope, as the eventual recipient of the wrath of God, that's to struggle in unbelief. It's painful. It's to be one who does not believe. So they qualify as one who struggles in unbelief. But Christian, let me tell you, there's another group of people who can struggle in unbelief. It could also mean simply to have an imperfect belief. In fact, that's what's happening in that Mark 9 passage. That's where the phrase comes from. The father's boy has an unclean spirit, and he comes to Jesus begging, asking for his help. And he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and heal my son. Jesus, probably smirking, says, if? If I can do anything? All things are possible for one who believes. So then the father, in his desperation, immediately cries out, I believe! Help my unbelief. He's saying, I do believe. I know. I know who you are. I know what you can do. I know what that looks like. I promise, I do. But it doesn't always feel like it. It doesn't always seem like it. I'm here, I'm asking, I want you to do it. I know you can. But there's a little piece somewhere back here that makes me think, but what if not? I believe, but I'm struggling. It doesn't always seem like my belief makes any difference in my life. I don't always think like one who believes. I don't always feel like one who believes. I certainly don't always act like one who believes. So Jesus, help my unbelief. Help me to believe fully and perfectly and truly. Make my faith sight. Heal my son. Do that which is impossible for anyone else to do because I believe that you can even though my belief is an imperfect belief. The father in that story, though he believes, is still struggling in unbelief. So who are these people who can believe but yet still struggle? Who struggles? Well, Christians do. Even those who positionally are believers, even those who absolutely are children of God, that is their identity, we can still struggle in unbelief just like that father in Mark 9. Yes, positionally, you are a believer. That is what you are and who you are. You are not an unbeliever. And yet, every time you hear a list of what it looks like to believe, every time someone tells you how a believer is supposed to think, how they're supposed to feel, how they're supposed to act, just like what I did a few minutes ago, your first thought, welling up from somewhere in your gut, maybe a chill down the back of your neck, is, that doesn't sound like me. That doesn't sound like what I experience. Those moments where it comes easy, I don't remember any of those. What does that mean? What does that look like? I want that desperately, but yet I, I seem not to have it. I'm struggling in my unbelief. Christian, let me skip to the end and tell you that it's okay to feel that way. It's okay to have those moments. It's okay to have those times, those seasons. It is okay to struggle, though you do believe. 
Because we serve a Christ who helps his people believe. Just like he did in that story. You see, we often get this idea in our heads about Christianity. We often get this idea in our heads about the gospel. That's actually anti-gospel. It's anti-Christianity. Somewhere along the line, we bought into the idea that when Christ died for our sins, he wiped our slate clean, and he washed our garments in his blood, and now, somehow, it's up to us. He gave me a clean slate, and I've got to keep it clean. He washed my garments white, and I've got to keep them white. We think that though he somehow knew that we were imperfect and died to wipe away that imperfection, that he only did that for exactly as much imperfection as we had at that moment. That he died to atone for just as much sin until you were six and you prayed to accept Christ. And then from then on, it's on you, buddy. As if somehow his blood doesn't have the power to cover all of your sins. Every every drop, every blot, every stain. We think... That's now on us. We tend to act like we have to make sure we don't mess it up. Like he might disown us for our sins someday, at some point. Like he will somehow, one day, get to the point where he goes, If I would have known you were going to be this bad, I would have died on the cross for somebody else. But he never does that, does he? Not once. We tend to act like we have to think, feel, and act perfectly. But that's not what Scripture says. Those aren't the people Christ died for. Read Galatians 3 and tell me that that's what it's saying. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's saying you didn't start that way. You didn't become a Christian by your own works. Why would you have to continue by your own works in order to stay a Christian? In order for his blood to still be applied to you. That's not how you began, so that's not how you continue. What does Romans 8 say about the Christian in sin? Romans 8, the first four verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christian, you who believe, there is no condemnation for you. Though you struggle in unbelief, there is no condemnation for you. Though you fail to think like a Christian, there is no condemnation for you. Though you fail to feel like a Christian, there's no condemnation for you. Though you fail to act like a Christian, There is still no condemnation for you. His blood was enough. There's no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. It is not up to you to somehow retroactively earn your salvation now that he's made you his. 
Christian, though you struggle in unbelief, you are still called into the worship of him because he will help you believe. He will stay steadfast in the midst of your doubts. Just as he will also help the non-Christian who struggles in unbelief to believe. Everything we've said today about unbelievers, that they cannot please God, that they're struggling, that they're foolish, that they have darkened hearts, that's all true. That's what scripture says. They do struggle in unbelief, but they don't have to. No one in here was born a Christian. And if Christ didn't save sinners, there would be no one left to save. Those who do currently not believe can believe. Even one who's not a child of God can be a child of God. Even one who struggles in unbelief can give that struggle over to Christ. Because to all who believe and struggle in unbelief, this church welcomes you on behalf of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, who will help you believe. That's what he does. Look specifically at the Luke passage. Verses 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He will help you believe, just like he did for the father in Mark 9 when he healed his son, just like what he does here for Peter in our text today by helping him against the enemy as an advocate for Peter's faith and that the church might be strengthened. He helps Peter against the enemy. Jesus is coming to Simon Peter's aid against Satan. That's what he says. Satan demanded to have you that he might sit you like wheat. Where Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, Christ is the good shepherd who is defending his sheep. Where the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, Christ is coming to give his people life. Not only that, life to the fullest. So when Christ works, when he atoned for your sins, when he rose from the dead, when he made you a new creation and called you into his worship, he was victoriously fighting against both his enemy and yours. When he helps you believe, he does so against the enemy. But he does so as an advocate. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you. The eternal son who is God is praying to God on your behalf. He didn't just do this for Peter this one time, but he is now currently actively interceding for his people and on their behalf until he comes again. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we obviously do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, though you sin, the one who you would think would be upset about that sin, angry about that sin, accusing you for that sin because he died to take away that sin, he's not the one accusing you. He's actually your advocate before the Father. Jesus Christ, the one who is righteous, is advocating for you rather than persecuting you. Though you sin, the one who paid for your sins is there with that payment every time. It never fails. Satan keeps sending the bill to him every time you mess up. He says, nope, did you see that? Did you see what he just did? 
He doesn't deserve this. He owes you. Look at him, that little deadbeat. You did all this for him, and what's he doing for you? Make him pay for it. And Jesus Christ, every time, takes that bill and stamps, paid. Paid. I already did it. I already paid for it. My children don't owe me money. That guilt has already been atoned for. I knew about that sin, and I went to the cross anyway. Paid. They don't owe me anything. In fact, they are going to one day receive everything. He, Jesus Christ the righteous, is your advocate on your behalf before the Father against the accuser. He's an advocate for you. He helps you to believe. Robert Murray McShane, who made the Bible reading plan that we're doing as a church this year, he once wrote, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He is. So live right now as if he is. Because distance makes no difference. Time makes no difference. Space makes no difference. The Christ who is always before the Father advocating on your behalf is praying for you right now. So trust that. Live like that's true. Though you believe and struggle in unbelief, believe that. If you could hear Christ praying for you in the next room, you shouldn't fear a million enemies, and he is. So don't fear anything. And he comes to help you believe for your belief, for your faith. Still in verse 32, For I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What an odd statement. That is not what I would expect Christ to say, particularly with what's about to happen. Like, Peter's going to deny him three times and then eventually turn back. I would think that Christ's goal in praying would be, I wish Peter would not mess up. I wish Peter would not embarrass me. I would expect someone to walk up and say, I prayed for you because if you fall, that's going to look pretty bad on me. That's going to be pretty embarrassing for me. You have been my right-hand man for three years. If you decide to switch teams, if you decide to testify for the prosecution, then I am going down, and I'm going down hard, Peter. Don't mess up. That's going to look really bad for me if you do that. I need you to pull through so that people don't think any less of me. But that's not what he says. I pray for you that your faith may not fail. That you will not forsake me. That you will not be forsaken. That within his prayer, Peter is the point of the prayer. Over and above himself being the point of the prayer. That your faith may not fail. That Peter won't fall away. That though the enemy wants to sift him and break him, Christ has prayed for him and for the sake of his faith, that that faith will not fail. He's saying, Peter, I'm in your corner. For your good and my glory, I am on your side. Regardless of what happens in the interim. He comes and helps Peter believe. And he does so for Peter, but also that the church may be strengthened. The end of verse 32. 
And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Christ is helping him believe for Peter's sake, but also for the sake of all those who are with Peter. Strengthen your brothers once you've turned. He's not only looking out for Simon Peter and all the other Peters who followed him for their own sake, but he's also helping them believe that they might be able to help someone else. That they might be able to turn to the person next to them and strengthen them when they've turned back. Your Christian life, your personal Christian faith, is for you. Yes, absolutely. But it's not just for you. It's not something that's only your own private, personal confession for you to have. It's also for the people around you. Part of what you've been called to in Christ is to join the community of faith, to join his church, to strengthen your brothers, to help those who are around you to follow Christ, that though they believe, you also can help with their unbelief. You can pray for them. You can come alongside them. You can confess your sin to them and hear their confession back to you. You can train each other in godliness and Christ-likeness. You can meet together in this place, in this time, every week as God's people to worship Christ and to be reminded of his gospel, to be reminded of who he is and what he's done for you. And then you can go out and find those who do not believe, those who are on the outside looking in, and you can bring them in just as you have been brought in. You who believe can find those who struggle in unbelief and tell them that that struggle doesn't have to end in a struggle. That struggle can give way to eternal life of belief, of true belief. You can go out and find them and tell them of the Christ who saved you, of the Christ who is with you, who's advocating for you. You can let them be a part of what Christ is doing in and through you. You can help them believe just as Christ has helped you to believe. So each week, when we gather together, let us never forget the meaning behind these words that we start every service with. To all who believe and struggle in unbelief, this church welcomes you on behalf of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners who will help you believe. Because he will. Because he can. Because he does. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to gather with these people in this place, in this time. Thank you for calling us to worship you. Not just calling someone to worship you, but calling us to worship you. Both us who believe and those of us who struggle in unbelief. Maybe even those of us who have not yet been believers. You are still calling us into your worship. You are still standing before us, telling us that your cross could be for us. That when you said it is finished, you meant it. That we who believe and still struggle in unbelief have a future that is incredibly bright in you. Where one day, our faith, our belief, will be made sight. Help for us to trust you in the interim. 
help us to be a church where people know that it's okay to struggle because we're here to help them. Because you're here to help them. Because just as you love them, we love them. How for that to be true of us? Let us be reminded of that truth each and every week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.